0: Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your hosts, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton.
1: Well, we're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 134. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, another week, man. We're uh, coming up on the holidays. We're trying to wrap up a few things this year. Uh, we've got a couple of stories to cover. How's how's it going on your end?
0: Going good. Going good. And uh, let's talk, Josh, real quick. So this is... We're recording this on... What's today? The... Today is the 16th 16th. of December. So we will have three shows coming out across the holidays. We'll have um, one on the 23rd, one on the 30th, and one on the January 6th. Now, those will be special editions. Josh and I will not be recording uh, like we do on a weekly basis. We have some pre-taped stuff that we're recording this week. So those will be... Um, recorded and released, assuming Nate does his job. You know what? I was getting a little ahead of myself. Yeah, you're, jo- you're, you're I, presuming yeah, a lot. Yeah, Josh and I will record them. I can't promise what's actually going to happen to them. But so, anyways, so 23rd, 30th, and the 6th, the listeners will have um, podcasting content on this thread coming out. With that being spit, uh, said, Josh, final call, final call. I got a few late notices for the Nate goes in the lake. Um, Stickers, so I have not sent those out. If you want some, I need to know. I'll probably send them out no later than Thursday this week, so Ryan at
2: GoR2.com. So get those reviews in and your direct messages to Ryan. Uh, we don't need more reviews, do we, Josh? We're at 214 reviews. 214. 11 more, and Ryan and Josh join me in Lake Granbury. Listeners, if you want to see a podcast host in its natural habitat, <laughs> water... Up to its <laughs> neck. Josh Shelton and Ryan Ray will be your your natural podcast hosts next January <laughs> if you just give us eleven more reviews with a little tap of your button. The Texas Oil and Gas Podcast on iTunes or your podcast app. No, it has and to be iTunes. It has to be iTunes. Man, you ruined my NPR. You're doing good Thank and it has to be five stars. And like it has you, to was, be five stars.
0: you was calling out the one stars. We can't we can't have that. That's why you can't run the show, Nate, right there. It's five stars in iTunes. We don't want them. We don't want them until um, after January one, though.
2: Oh, actually we want them immediately. Before Thursday. You don't get a sticker if you don't get it in before Thursday. Yeah,
0: well, we don't we don't want them between now and Thursday. January one pound up five star reviews. Speaking of listeners, you know, a few weeks ago I was kinda of depressed because um, we had a listener, Jim in eight eleven, who was talking about you know Josh is the man and he can announce Well, he sent in a request for a sticker, and so I said, hey, you know I'm not giving you one because you're Team Josh. And he sent back, um, ha, I had to do it. I feel like Josh and Nate are too fragile to poke at. So, you had to take the brunt of it. In all reality, textual Gas podcasts at Energy Week are awesome. I've got some mid-majors in my account book from, uh, from what I sell, and the two podcasts have been instrumental in laying the foundation for getting the industry knowledge. So, Jim is not really Team Josh guy, or Team Mega. That was a strategy said, to get a sticker. To run on, that's all it was. <laughs> he said, "You guys are too fragile." Which, if he, he he knows y'all quite well, I should say, we do have two more five star reviews uh, to read. One is from H Town Aggie. Great podcast, always entertaining with great insight in, into all areas of oil and gas. Great to hear hot topics and professional insight into current happenings in the oil patch. Nice to stay in the loop and gain knowledge in areas of our industry that I both do and do not typically work in. Keep up the good work. Gig them. no Yeah, and then one more best oil and gas pod out there. This is from UT Pre-Med. So I'm, I'm not sure. We'll, we'll get in a second. As a student of petrogeology and engineering, these are both in these guys are both informative and entertaining, both new bucks to the industry like myself and those who are lifetime oil Industry can get a ton of great info on not just the technical and Gas podcast, but also the world. He, he acknowledges that I'm the
2: I'm the foreign, yeah, you see the you see foreign that he's, correspondent, yeah. international arms dealer Ryan Ray.
0: Well, I mean, I won the award for yeah. Diplom not diplomat but um, foreign policy foreign policy expert thank you he 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 caught that it's good to know
1: it's been impressive to me Ryan is that the podcast has been able to do so much with me when I'm having to work with two new bucks in the industry <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: let's finish this person's review before we get too far off I tell everyone I can about this podcast me and some other Marines in the industry highly support you guys keep up the awesome work thank you and thank you to all the marines out there I think that's yeah. the first time I've Fi, heard of guys first marine listeners um, out there but it's yeah 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 young bucks uh-huh I heard I heard you Joshua so anyways smartest listeners in the industry as I said multiple and multiple times last week I was a podcasting God this week we hear that the listeners understand the fragile nature of you two and so that's that's good to know so yeah it's been a good week man good week
1: Great week. Well, uh, it's been a it's been a good week for for a lot of folks. But Chevron, actually, uh, they're doing an eleven billion dollar write down amid weak gas prices. Uh, so we know earlier this year they had the one billion that they got from Anadarko for not buying. So they were showing a, a really strong year this year. I think they're as far as profit margins are, are number one because of that. But uh, they Appalachia. Um, assets are are not doing very well, so they saw a slump in prices, and so they're doing a write down of uh, pretty pretty major pretty major budget changes there. So it's going to be interesting to see what Chevron does. I, I've I've got my ear to the ground, and I think there's going to be some movement in the Permian this year. Uh, Ryan, you actually had a, a couple of insights. Into
0: yeah, it. because I actually read what they said. You know, um, I'm at Bloomberg, but I actually read what they put in there. Their paper, uh, their their quarterly release, which was it was really tough, Josh. Really tough. Took a lot of I don't know how someone like me who was able to to get this and, and not Bloomberg, but if you actually go read what um, Chevron put out there, essentially they are writing writing this down as you mentioned, and Bloomberg was able to pick out. But if you go to their quarterly releases, and I put this on LinkedIn, um, essentially if you just scroll down the page, just a just a smidge there. They have some verbiage talking about um, last year, or, or what they're going to do in the Permian and, um, let's see here, this is what it says. In the upstream, this is from their, their quarterly report, in the upstream business, approximately $11 billion is forecasted to sustain and grow pr- currently producing assets, including about $4 billion from Permian unconventional development and about $1 billion for other international unconventional development. That okay. Well, that, that's that 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 really means anything, right? Because right. last year they could have had you know a hundred billion, so they could be going down from eleven, or they could have had five. So so I did I did a lot of hard research. I just went back a whole year, which was like I had to go back one page of things. So a lot of work took me a half a second to find this, and it says last year the same verbiage. It's it's, it's, it's tough in the upstream business. Approximately ten point four billion is forecasted to sustain, da, 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 including three point six in the Permian. Now I don't have one of them fancy degrees on my wall like these folks at Bloomberg do, Josh. But it sounds like they're increasing their budget in the Permian by the tune of four hundred million dollars. So yes, they are writing down their gas stuff. Yes, they are getting rid of it. Yes, that's all true. But for this show and you know the folks that we we care about and deal with in this part of the world, they're increasing their budget four hundred million dollars. And I didn't
1: see that headline anywhere. Did you? Did you Mm-mm. catch that headline? Nope. Oh, nope. Okay. Okay. I didn't make sure. You got to hear, folks. Got to hear first, folks. Texas Long Gas Podcast. Chevron is increased in premium oh, budget by four hundred million. million. Yeah, million. we had to get the
0: Excel, the calculators. We had to call an analyst. It was it was tough to to decipher that from those those reports. I mean, you heard it was almost word for word the same thing, just change the numbers. It was tough for us to uh, simpletons to figure out. But we did persevere. We figured it out. So yeah, they write writing it down. Sure. Um if you're a stock guy and that's it's relevant to you, then there obviously is some potential concern there. But for us in the Permian, four hundred million dollar increase and we can watch next year to see where exactly they deploy that to. There could that you know that could go a lot of a lot of different areas inside their upstream business. But um sounds like Chevron's optimistic about what they're gonna be doing next year in the Permian, but you wouldn't have caught that from the headlines.
1: You know, we've we've been talking a little bit about some of the majors starting to circle around the the Permian as some of these smaller companies are struggling. Uh, I wonder, I wonder, with the the budget that they have and some of these right uh, the write downs, if there's possibly um, trying to free up some capital for other means. You know, maybe uh, acquiring some additional acreage or picking up a company here. But with their increased budget in the Permian, it seems that um, there's definitely uh, intention to grow their assets there and, and really start deploying more. So I'm eager to see that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean the final thing I'll say is if you kind of look through um, this Bloomberg piece, which will be linked to in the show notes, you know, it does mention that the, that the overall budget is, um, is, in, is increasing. But when they talk about the Permian, they say um, worth has made... Crude production from the Permian Basin, the centerpiece of his global strategy, with a budget of $4 billion for the shale play next year. Um, and it goes on to say that it doesn't, unless you, yeah, it doesn't say anything else about the increased or decreased the budget. So it's just, it's just funny that they just completely omit that fact, uh, unless I'm, I'm missing it somewhere. But yeah, the headlines were definitely true, but also for what we care about, mis- a little bit misleading, I felt. So I wanted to get that out there.
1: The article came out from Houston Chronicle, Permian drilling must pick up uh, just to maintain current production. Um, so we've we've been talking a little bit about some of the efficiencies in the industry, how the, dr- the rig count has been dropping, drilling has been decreasing, but production has been up. So uh, this article is basically arguing that that trend can't continue, that uh, drilling is going to have to accelerate if we're going to at least, at a minimum, maintain production, that uh, drilling cannot continue to slow down. Which, common sense, Ron, I think we all knew that this was coming. Apparently, it's getting pretty close that um, as drilling is is hitting a point now where they're not going to be able to continue production levels with uh, with current trends of decreasing in rig count. You
0: know, it's funny because I remember back in uh, June, folks talking about. Uh, we had enough ducks at that time to keep. If production stopped, essentially, we could keep production at the same level for six months. Drilling hasn't stopped, and now we're already seeing these articles um, in December saying that if you know the the uh, the the drilling's got to pick up to to keep production, which is I mean, so it's you know, it's one of those things where this. Last week, two weeks ago, hey, you know, we're going to have a... And there was stories last week about we're going to have a glutton oil. We got too much oil. The oil you know, oil, so it, it's hard to tell what is it because is it, you know, we need to pick up production or we need to lower production? Um, OPEC cuts, are they going to work? Are they not going to work? Um, you know, you look at something like Chevron's increasing their budget. Um and so, yes, obviously the decline rates require that you replace the wheels faster in the shell plays than in conventional. That's nothing new. Um, but, it, but, yeah, I think it's one of those deals where you look at it and you go, well, just, just two weeks ago and even last week there were reports coming out about, you know, the price is going to – well, what was the report you were talking about? Goldman Sachs or someone said they expect the price to be down $5 over the course of next year compared to this year. I think it was you should tell me that. Someone was talking about Goldman yeah, Sachs. Yeah,
1: I, I did. I looked at it cuz they they showed it was going to be dropped by $2 in every category, Brent, WTI.
0: Um, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. it was all those. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so it's um it's that time of year again where people are making their predictions and stating the the I don't know, the obvious, but stating the things that, you know, they got to get their their articles out. And so this is one of those ones where I don't know really what the takeaway is because and you know, if production goes away, I mean, if drilling goes away, production has to decline. I think we broke that news on here too, once or twice. Yeah.
1: So, <laughs> well, uh, Ryan, it, it looks like um, Chesapeake ended up being. Was it a, a? Did they get a warning, or were they actually delisted this this past week?
0: Yeah. So, what happens is, if you trade below a dollar for thirty consecutive days, then you get a warning, um, and then when you get that warning, you have to hit certain standards, or they kick you off. So, they are now probation might be a good way They're to think about warning it right. yeah they are they are in trouble and so but it's not um they have to trade above a dollar i think every day for 30 days if i remember correctly so it's not so before and i'm not a stock broker but my understanding was if they would have just hit a dollar um one of those days in there they would have been gotten this warning um but they but they didn't but now I think they have to stay above a dollar for thirty days. I believe is how it is, which is not necessarily an easy task to do when you can't get above a dollar for one day. So uh, I know we talked on here about people potentially looking to buy, you know, some of their assets and stuff like that. I know they're, they're saying that they, they got a plan to kind of uh, get things going again, but it, it's definitely, um, you know, it's definitely something that you're like, okay, this is this is it. And I, I must I must give Sergio Chapa props here. We we give him a hard time on the show a lot, but. Um I, I I think I shared this article and I sent it to him just you know because we always talk about Chesapeake and stuff and, and he pointed out that on Friday the thirteenth, I have dubbed Chesapeake Jason. And on Friday the thirteenth, Jason might have finally gotten the axe. Hey, I thought that was you know that hey. that's probably in the three years I've known him the best insight he's ever given me. Um and so um, if you don't know on LinkedIn I've joked about Chesapeake being Jason and you just can't actually get rid of them. And there was Friday the 13th. Jason might actually be getting to see the um, the beginning beginning of the end of at least what we've formally understood as Chesapeake. So a uh, bad day for those guys for sure. And and final thing is, if my math is right, they should have they should have got this notice sooner. So I don't know how that works, but I did wonder why they haven't received this. I thought maybe I'd missed them hitting a dollar at some point. Um, so my my, my my I wonder, and maybe one of the listeners who knows, can they hold the notice for so long before they announce it? Because there was three companies that on Friday that announced uh, that they're getting potentially de- delisted them, McDermott and, uh, and and one other. So it was, it was a bad day for folks in the industry
1: uh, as far as that goes. Carbo. That's the other company. So uh, we had an article that came out. This uh, this was. Pretty interesting uh, pretty interesting read Sergio uh, released an article Houston billionaire buys nearly 1 million shares of enterprise products partners so went back uh, did a little research she she bought 25 million uh, over the past week which for it was 950,000 shares and a total that gives her 699 million shares and in case you're wondering who this is this is Randa Duncan Williams um, and What I didn't know at the time, but I've been looking at is that Dan Duncan is actually the founder of Enterprise Products. So she owns approximately one third of the company. And uh, for her to go in and double down and buy some of these stocks, it makes me think that Enterprise is in a really good spot right now. At least she thinks they are. Yeah, she thinks they are.
0: And, and it should be, for those of you who aren't sure who Dan Duncan is, um, I thought he was the richest person in Houston, but I did a quick search here. Kinder Morgan. Rich, Rich uh, Morgan, I think. Is. He was the third richest person in Texas. He was, Yeah, Duncan was the richest person in the city of Houston and the third richest person in Texas with $8.2 billion in 2008. Wow. So once he died, and he was worth nine billion by the time of his death. This is according to I think Forbes via Wikipedia. So you know we can hash it out later. But but he was I, I think when because we've done some work for those guys and I think at the time uh, we first started coming across them they were he was he, he, that was kind of being talked about. Now we this would have been after that. But anyways, so she's in charge of the family fund, the Duncan family fund. And It's an interesting story if you kind of go back and just look at um, kind of how they amassed all of these companies. Um, you know over the years and so uh
1: she's she's number two now in houston six billion is what she's worth which is uh behind uh rich rich kinder he's worth i don't know i don't even have his numbers but he's the number one in houston now sounds
0: like she needs to invest in a podcast
1: podcast that would podcast. be the thing she would podcast. be number one within she could be the richest podcaster
0: yeah in texas maybe in the world maybe in the world i mean so we're, you know, we're happy to find out yeah we're happy yeah, to find we're out
1: we're definitely you know. yeah so let's, uh, let's, uh, eight
0: let's, figures Miss Duncan Williams if you uh, yeah, you want to come on and uh, talk about that we can have our people get in touch with your people
1: alright so for the Texas Roundup we have a couple of stories we wanted to to touch on Epic Crude announces first shipment of crude oil for export from Epic Dock uh, so the, the the shipment of crude from the IGC marine terminal located in the inner harbor of the Corpus Christi ship channel uh, they just loaded their first shipment of crude oil so that epic um, crude is is shipping its first shipment so that was uh, that was interesting news it makes me also as I'm thinking about it now I want to go do some some digging around to see what's going on with the ship channel with Corpus with uh, Trafigura and and all of that as we hadn't we hadn't checked on that in quite a while so uh, kind of a while yeah Carlis yeah, yeah. middle note we to cover it what was it, about a month ago month and all and that a half was going ago, yeah, yeah. Uh, Houston Private Equity buys Austin Oil and Gas Firm for $200, and mil, uh, 200 million. So uh, Jones Energy um, was was a private equity firm. Jones Energy bought uh, Revolution Resources for $200 million.
0: Uh, Actually, no, I got that wrong, Josh. Let's see here. Mountain Capital Partners will merge Jones Energy into Revolution Resources. Uh, I think I said it backwards there. Jones also owns Anadarko Basin Acreage and the Texas Panhandle uh, Mountain Capital was founded four years ago and has four oil and gas company portfolios including Revolution, which was started in 2018. So clear that up a little bit there.
1: Shell contracts for 4G LTE Network in the Gulf of Mexico. So for those that enjoyed the talk that uh, David Blackman and I had on the podcast that day, uh, we were discussing some of the Cellular and uh, other contracts. Yeah, Sergio was on with us last week. I
0: think about the well a couple weeks ago, but about the the Permian. Yeah,
1: yeah. Just some of the the digital and and data that needs that are that are out in the Permian. So Royal Dutch Shell will extend 4G LTE wireless networks across all of its operations in the Gulf of Mexico in order to speed up its offshore digitalization efforts. Shell is contracting with Norway-based Tampnet to install wireless LTE equipment and coverage to all of its Gulf facilities it says here that tempnet has built out a network for about 80,000 square miles of offshore coverage in the gulf of mexico so um that that i think some of these developments may end up having some implications for the permian developments i think you know these partnerships may end up leading to some uh, some of these other companies going the the route that shell is and partnering with some of these Companies like Tempnet to go in and build a uh, better infrastructure for for data. Exxon prevails in climate change lawsuit. So we well
0: co- we don't want to get too far on this because we think we have a special guest coming on to talk about this. This this so okay. It did break last week, and we did want to mention it. But we do have um, uh, a guest. We're hoping to get on one of these uh, weeks that we're off. We're hoping to have on a guest coming on Friday to discuss it. So we will. Tease that, and if he doesn't come on, and you you do not get that, we know we know who to blame. Who to blame? Nate. 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 Okay, so Nate, you're on me. Yeah. So me. If it doesn't, if it doesn't happen okay. while we're gone for holiday break, then
2: um, then we blame you. So. Well, shoot. If it if it does happen, can I not go in the lake?
0: Well, I mean, I was texting with listeners. Um, this was Saturday at. Uh, you know, 720 and getting this set up. So, man of the people. Man of the people. That's right. That's right.
1: All right. So a story that I feel like we just covered, Basic Energy Service exits hydraulic fracturing business. So the story that came out previously was Basic Energy was filing for bankruptcy. And uh, they got delisted too, didn't they? I think so, yeah. yes. So yeah. it says that they are exiting the hydraulic fracturing business in total, and they are... Uh, so the company reported that it is selling almost all of its assets in the pressure pumping business, which includes hydraulic fracturing and other related services, BASIC intends to use the proceeds from the sales to reinvest and focus on its core business of well production services and to expand its oil field wastewater disposal services. So that's going to be the trajectory for BASIC. it would be curious to see how they how they do.
0: You know, it's funny. I talked to a guy just the other day who is kind of – in this space and, you know, pretty locked in. And he was saying that the pressure-pumping business, he believes, is actually one of the better businesses to be in moving forward. Um, And so to see Basic, you know, getting out of that business, now he had some specific reasons of why that was the case, but it makes me wonder if Basic um, maybe had missed the boat on on, on some of that. I don't know much about Basic's internal workings, but he did say that he thought there would be a lot of opportunity in that space if you were strategically positioned. So to see that they're getting out of it now, I wonder – you know, kind of what led to that um, from that. But, you know, um, they're moving to the wastewater disposal or going to you know expand its wastewater disposal. And that's a space, Josh, we talked about. You remember, you know, the sand boom. The sand was going crazy and then kind of died off. And you just wonder if the water – I know right now water is the thing and everyone says it can't slow down. But you do wonder if that's, if that's a short-term deal or a long-term deal. Um, and I'm not a, you know, not the water expert on wastewater disposal for sure, but the more money that gets pushed over there, it feels like the shorter, uh, the, the, the faster, rather, that the, um, the slowdown or, or flattening off will come, especially since it's tied on some level to production and drilling. So if that's leveling off. So I'm just curious, as we go into 2020, um, if the rig count doesn't really ramp up what the headlines will read about wastewater disposal as it pertains to you know, drilling and fracking and stuff like that, will companies find themselves in a spot that they they overplayed that hand? Or is there just that such a backlog in work that really we have a long time to unwind it? So, again, I don't really have a, a strong stance. I'm just looking at it going, hmm, okay, the rig count's going down. Production's going to slow down. Uh, you, you you did have a, a kind of a bottleneck here on the wastewater side, but at some point you feel like that has to level off. Shouldn't the slowdown in drilling help uh, expedite that? So anyways, love to hear some mm-hmm. listeners' comments on that. Brian at GoR2.com or text Let us know your comments on the future of the water stuff as it pertains to 2020. I'm sure we got some listeners who are a lot more keyed in on those predictions than I am.
1: Also, there was a report from the EIA that came out. The United States set new records for approved reserves of oil and natural gas as well as for production in 2018. So lots of interesting takeaways here in this article. Definitely put it in the show notes. Um, some cool things there. I, I know being a net exporter was something that uh, we reached for, I think, one month, uh, for a single month. It's the first month in a long time that we've actually been a net, net exporter of uh, oil and natural gas. So... Um, uh, lots of cool things here.
0: Yeah, and we will go. This is, um, came out last, I guess it was last week, um, or no, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It came out last week because the next release, it's, it's an annual report that they do. So it kind of goes year on year. And so you can kind of read the summary here if that is something, um, that tickles your fancy. But yeah, a lot of good stuff. If you're curious about reserves, where they're at, where, they, or at least where the EIA thinks they're at, um, you know, that's, uh, it's, it's uh, got a lot of good stuff, and also you get to get access to the data. So, we'll link to that in the show notes. And um, you know, Josh, it's one of those deals where if you kind of get in there, you start looking at it. You can spend you can spend uh, hours just kind of <laughs> reading about the data, thinking about the implications. I, I will say this real quick: crude oil and lease condensate for you uh, from U.S. Shell plays. This was as December 31st of 2018. Seven major shale plays accounted for 49% of all U.S. crude oil and lease condensate proved reserves. Uh, the Wolf Camp Bone Spring shell play in the Permian Basin remains the largest oil-producing shell play in the United States. And then it goes on to, to break it down there. So... Um, Obviously, I knew the shale had a major impact. I didn't know where it was. Forty-nine percent of the crude oil, as of today, or are, our are, are proved reserves. Obviously, that doesn't mean all, or you know, but approved reserves. Forty-nine percent is from shale. So, um, which I don't know. Would you have thought that would have been higher or lower?
1: I would have. I would expect it to be high, honestly.
0: Well, I guess it would depend on how much, uh, and I don't have the the data here. Um, if they're considering offshore as part of the approved reserves, if they are, then that would lower it. You know, that would make sense. If they're not, then it would be, let's see here No, I mean, according to this, they don't have anything offshore. Um, That's not saying it's not part of it, but at least it's not listed in that chart there. So anyways, yeah, 49% was, I don't know where they actually measured that compared to the offshore stuff but but if they are majoring offshore then it would kind of make sense if they're not then it would be kind of a uh, kind of surprising
1: okay today we have a special guest coming on the show joseph latronica he is a product manager uh for the multi-phase production systems at Leistritz. uh joe it's great to have you on the show today man i've been looking forward to it for a little while
3: yeah it's great to be on thanks for inviting us well, forward joe, to as well
1: Joe, uh, I actually was at a flaring conference in Midland. Uh, this was about a month and a half ago, and there was a gentleman there by the name of George. He uh, he sat next to me at the table, and we had uh, we had several hours of good conversation. We were listening to some uh, different companies give some presentations, and come to find out he was actually given a presentation that day as well. And so uh, I talked to him a little bit. He had a lot of interesting things to say. And uh, so I, I shot him an email over after the the meeting. And he thought it would be a good idea to get somebody from your company to come on and share some insights into the industry and, uh, and you know, with flaring regulations, environmental, on the Texas and New Mexico side of the Permian. Uh, so there's lots of interesting things going on and uh, just – Kind of giving you a little background of, of how I, I come into the position to, to reach out to you guys.
3: Great, great. Yeah, I spoke to George uh, briefly about this. And uh, I know I work pretty close with George um, trying to tackle this Permian market as well as other areas in South America. So uh, it it's, seems to be an interesting time of year. Um, we're getting a lot more information coming from the end users. We're getting inquiries and uh it, it's it's looking up it looks like the industry is starting to change a bit so we're excited
1: so from your perspective joe when uh when y'all were looking at some of the environmental regulations with flaring and, and the way things are developing um obviously you see that as an opportunity for multi-phase production so uh, tell us tell us a little bit about what multi-phase production is and what um what uh, some of the solutions it could bring to the industry in the Permian. So what what, what is it, and how is the situation in the Permian kind of a, a right fit for it?
3: Sure. Well, we're all used to conventional separation with uh, lots of equipment, flaring, tanks, and all different pumps and processing. So the multiphase system was kind of designed to eliminate a lot of that. Uh, you eliminate at the wellhead, and instead of having separate pipelines and flaring at each wellhead or a series of wells or batteries, you're putting it to a central facility and basically utilizing uh, the smaller footprint. Um, with the new regulations coming out now, uh, flaring has been a hot, very hot topic right now, and pun intended. Um, we're wasting a lot of gas. And I know uh, there is a hard time getting the gas conveyed through pipelines because of capacity and stuff, but we still are wasting a lot of energy. Uh, The multi-phase pump system, you know, it eliminates the capital costs and um, operating expenses as well. And, uh, you know, conveys one pipeline instead of three. And again, your your, um, flare is eliminated at the wellhead and uh, so less emissions. Um, some of the other benefits too, I mean, if you, some gas wells, they'll utilize gas engines and they'll burn the gas right there. So use sales gas to convey the system, right? And drive it. So um, we're really looking at this, uh, the flare reduction as a, as a good opportunity for multiphase pumping and changing the, the actual design of the field which, you know, the benefit is is pretty big because by utilizing the system, we can lower the back pressure and then you do boost production.
0: Yeah, yeah so a couple questions here to kind of walk maybe me and the listeners to this process. Um are you talking, so, you know, as, as we see it now, we hear calls for open season and producers uh, guarantee volumes of a specific product to pipeline companies. So would this be for future production that hasn't come online? Are you looking for uh, uh, um, to deal with uh, production that has not come online? Or would this be retroactive where producers, um, you know, have already obligations and, and maybe this is a way to um, to help them maximize that? How does that work from your, your perspective?
3: Okay. So um, we deal with uh, a lot of greenfields and brownfields. Um, I noticed in the States, just through, you know, uh, through experience, greenfields aren't as prominent as overseas and in other countries. Uh, So it's starting, we're starting to see more of that because of locations of the wells. Um, They may not have enough, just might not have enough real estate to put a big system in. Mm-hmm. And they realized that, hey, maybe putting a single pipeline in might be a better idea. So it might be cost effective for that. Uh, and it wasn't until just recently that we started seeing that trend. Um, so so that being said, seeing a lot more interest coming from the Texas markets now. It used to be predominantly uh, more offshore Because of footprint size, but now onshore, we're starting to see more and more interest as a startup and doing that cost analysis to see if it's beneficial to do a multi-phase system as opposed to traditional. And in some instances, it it has worked out um, positive where uh, multi-phase systems have been more economical. And I mean, to, uh, to the extreme. So uh, there are some benefits to that
0: as well. Right. And one of the reasons we see in the pipeline space is that they do separate it is, um, as you mentioned, there's some cost issues, but also there's integrity issues um, depending on what kind of oil you're putting into the pipe. You have heating issues and, and things like this. Uh, when you go through this process of what you guys are proposing, like how do you um, – uh, work through those issues on the front end so that the pipeline company can understand um, you know, long-term integrity issues that they might face. They might understand if they put you know, this product through the pipeline, this is the ki- type of uh, preventive measures we need to take. But when you multiphase it, um, is, is it that you kind of have a new spec that you give them, or, or how do you, what would be that process? Because that would be one of the questions that just from dealing with the pipeline companies in the past that I, I would have is I don't know how you're um, – How do you keep from those issues coming up, you know, 5, 10, 15 years on the road where uh, it's a different type of product than they're used to dealing with?
3: Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, As you know, we handle many different products in the oil field, whether it's chemicals, whether it's, you know, inhibitors and everything else. And it's constantly changing, not to mention frack water and and abrasives and all that stuff coming through. Uh, So when we do these designs, uh, we do work. Closely with the pipeline company and you know the process engineers and, and uh, the field field guys just to determine what may happen over the life of the wells and the pipeline. Yeah, we've come online in midstream, and the uh, the stuff you'll drag through a pipeline that hasn't been utilized in a while is also a factor. So um, we try to tend to keep the velocities out of the pump low within the spec. We uh, keep an eye on the temperatures. So if we are changing anything through the pipeline. Uh, so yeah, we work pretty close with the midstream companies just to make sure that they're getting, uh, a, getting a product that their system can handle.
0: Right, and, and so on that, let me reverse engineer the question. We, we, we saw last year, I believe it was uh, or earlier this year, Epic um, actually had a pipeline that they were used for natural gas And the prices were so low, they said we're going to put oil to it for a few months while they're waiting on uh, their oil pipeline to be completed. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of pipe in the ground already. Is this something where you could go to midstream companies now and say, hey, guys, I know you're concerned about the issues I just laid out. Here is some preventative measures that we can work with you guys on. Uh, We know that if the Texas Railroad Commission says uh, kind of – Changes their stance on flaring, you guys could have an opportunity here to go ahead, and you might have a pipeline that's not at full capacity for whatever reason. Um, here's a way to go market your pipelines to producers. Uh, so is that is that also possible, or does it need to be more front end type startup on the pipeline side of things?
3: You know, um, it would probably be more front end startup on the okay. pipeline. Uh, yeah, because obviously some of the pipes are in the ground for a long time, and the mm-hmm. pipeline integrity could be. Could be you know uh, like, you know uh, under distress or something so we could have all kinds of issues
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, I mean I've had people talk to us about that saying that if you change the velocity and some of the pipelines it's so old there could be could result in some issues of the pipeline and um, yeah it's, it's best to do that up front with with those guys and then work out uh, a way and if it's something that we can handle on the discharge to change uh, velocities going into it or, you know, um, some sort of uh, flow either flow rate or inhibitor or something, That's it's best to work up on the front line.
0: Right. Now, you mentioned the, the natural gas, and um, if you could package the natural gas uh, through this multi-phase process, it is theoretically possible that, that the companies could make money, but the, also you could make the argument that you're putting more natural gas into the supply system, which would depress prices. Um so, obviously, if you have a regulatory mandate that, 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 that shifts the market, that kind of uh, makes you um, do this, that, that's one thing. But just from a pure economic standpoint, what would be the potential upside for um, um, doing it this way as opposed to flaring it off? Let's just, just from a pure economics, not necessarily, uh, you know, environmental standpoint or regulatory standpoint. But just from an economic standpoint, is, sure. there, is there a benefit to doing it this way?
3: Well, um you know, by lowering the back pressure, we're going to get more gas, obviously, uh, on the well. So as we lower it, we're also bringing up liquids. And if it's an existing wellhead and we have down hole equipment, you know, we're bringing these, you know, uh, the gas liquid to a bubble point where you're going to get better uptime on your artificial lift equipment. So that reduces your, your CapEx and OpEx for, you know, uh, for repairing that equipment, um, you're getting more uptime on pump jacks. You're getting more uptime on ESPs, and yes, you're putting more gas into it. But with that, it's coming to liquid. Uh, but uh, you know, you're you're you are, like I said, drawing up more gas. But you're going to get a, a gain in in uh, liquid, and that's going to give you additional revenue. And you're also, like I said, reducing the cost of the existing downhole equipment, which uh, you know, 95% of the wells all have some sort of artificial lift, and if they're not operating at the bubble point and those liquids aren't coming into the well, you're not getting the full, full work of the, uh, of the equipment.
0: So, so let me make sure. Let me see if I'm following you along here. If let's say, for instance, you you, you typically got you know 40 percent of the oil in a, in an area, um, would this method maybe bump it up to 42 percent recoverability or 43 percent? I mean, I'm not asking you to put an exact number on it, but are you saying that actually you're going to get more oil out of a, a per well basis doing doing this because of um, the, those things you just described?
3: Sure. You know, again, like I said, as we as you lower the the wellhead pressure, you're definitely going to boost the production up. You could get anywhere from, you know, 10%, if not more. It depends on how much liquid you have there. Uh, it's kind of hard to put a sure, yeah, a yeah, number yeah. on right, it, but right. it's your productivity index. And you know, lately we've been working a lot more. Uh, the industry's been working a lot more with, uh, you know, with the engineers just trying to get that number and see where we can go and where we can meet that productivity, productivity index. Uh, some say it's a... a small drop in pressure some say it's a great drop in pressure it all depends on the field but yeah no we've seen increases um globally by lowering you know lowering the uh, wellhead pressure and uh and a lot of times paid for fairly quickly that's why uh so a lot of people do look to this as a possible solution um now with that being said I'm not saying it's the only solution, obviously, but uh, depending upon the things that you mentioned earlier, too, like the integrity of the pipeline. Um, if it's a green field, you could, you can put in one pipe; you have everything all up front. Brown fields, you could run into some issues. There's no doubt about it. I mean, either if you're pulling on old pipe, or if you're you're pushing on new pipe or old pipe, right? You're gonna get some issues. Um, and, one of the areas I've done some work in was in the Bakken, but it was north of the border in Canada. Now, they're set up with plenty of conveyance systems. You know, they, they're, they're set up uh, a little differently than we are in the Bakken. But when we drew down the pressure, those pumps saw some welding slag, everything that was in undulating pipelining, and it all came into the pumps. So you saw lots of changes in, in the flow. And uh, so, you know, that being said, it's, you know, it's something to think about when you're when you're um, when you're choosing a system.
0: Yeah, no, I think your point is is right that there's a lot of solutions to reduce costs, and um, not every solution works for every single producer, and that's something on on this show we've tried to talk about is is that the industry is the industry is not um, one company. You know, it's everyone's got their different problems and different issues and different goals and objectives. Give me maybe one or two of the biggest objections when you walk in to pitch your product that you've heard that are really maybe uh, misconceptions or things that aren't really issues, but just um, folks when they hear this, they go, oh my gosh, this won't work because X, Y, and Z. And how do you answer those?
3: Okay. So the biggest thing is, what is this? You know, um, I'm used to conventional separation, compression, and pumping. How does that one machine do this? Right. And what do you do with the heat? And, um, how low can you go? Why? There's, there's numerous questions that they ask. The biggest one is, uh, why would I change from what I'm using, which is conventional separation. So, um, the biggest task that anyone who produces multi-phase pumping is, is educating the customer on the product. So, uh, and I'll tell you what, it's, it's a, it's a tough battle. Uh, you really have to, to kind of work it from the field. That's the easiest way. You wanna give someone uh, an understanding of what they're gonna be working on, and it's similar, but different. You know, a lot of the equipment on these systems are the same as conventional separation equipment. There's nothing different. The only thing is the heart of it, and it's just a pump instead of a compressor, but it's a pump that acts like a compressor. So um, a lot of questions come up about heat, in heated compression. And um, so that's usually addressed either with uh, cooling for some means. Um, other is power and power required. And also, uh, you know, can it be remote? And these are all, all questions that are simple. They're, they can be addressed. Um, power requirements, depending upon your gas fraction. They could be, in differential pressure, they could be higher than compression. Some are right in line with compression. So um, a lot of those questions come up as well. Let's see, like you had mentioned earlier, effects on pipelines, effects on infrastructure, that as well. Uh, Question also, is there room for a central processing facility? Do they have that availability? Um, and, you know, it, can it be used on a wellhead or if it can be used on a battery series of wells? And also, how do we, how do we meter the flow? How do we get payment? Um, that's, that's a big one because, especially in these areas that are, you know, it's on private land, you need to know the, you know, the custody transfer and you need to know payment. So you need to know exactly what's coming out of the ground. So that's been something that we're working with some some companies now on, and that, I'll tell you what, that's fairly new. Uh, a lot more players involved, but that's something that's uh, that comes up quite a bit.
0: Okay, I guess final question for me is, um, what kind of mix are you looking for? So if you have something that's just real dry gas, it doesn't seem like this is applicable. Um, so at what point does this come into play? Um, do you, know, you need a certain percentage or a certain ratio? Um, kind of walk us through that process at a high level.
3: So, so the equipment can handle 100% gas at the inlet. Now, you know, dry gas in say 99.99% GVF is is not a fit for our equipment. Um, it's when you start getting those liquid slugs. Uh, obviously, high liquid levels. Um, 95%. Up to 97% GVF is, or that's gas volume fraction. Uh, that's where we like to operate in. Uh, and other thing is too is, is differential pressure. Um, you know, the higher differential pressure, the, uh, the greater the power. Because we're a positive displacement pump, and and you know most multiphase pumps are are positive displacement pumps. So you're gonna you're gonna lose out on your efficiency due to high differential pressure at high gas fractions. So Uh, and also you have to deal with heat of compression as well. So in that 95, 97% GVF is, is ideal, uh, slugging, um, overcoming terrain issues. I mean, there's lots of, uh, you know, lots of benefits, um, using the equipment, the, uh, it's I, I mentioned earlier too with the downhole equipment it enhances that as well. So when there's liquids available in that say at least five, ten percent of the total flow volume and relatively uh, medium to low pressure, it's an ideal fit.
0: Okay, well, that's great to know. Where can people find out more about you guys, a uh, website, social media, conferences, anything like that?
3: Uh, well, our, our website at, uh, Um, also we are on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, we do email blasts. We work a lot with, um, empowering pumps, um, sending out, uh, you know, webinars and stuff like that. So, and we do a lot of trade shows coming up this year. I think we have the global petroleum show we'll be at in Calgary. Um, And I know there will be various shows in in the area. You know, I can be reached at uh, jlatronica at com. Awesome.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. This has been uh, helpful, and we'll be sure to link to all that stuff in the show notes.
3: Great, guys. Thanks thanks Thanks. a lot, Joe.
1: I appreciate it. All
3: right. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks again to Joe Latronica for coming on the show today and sharing some of those insights. Really enjoyed having him on. With that, Ryan, I think we are wrapping it up. Uh, y'all, be sure to tune in early, uh, early January. Nate's going to be going in the lake. Uh, well, free... We're not
0: wrapping. We're not wrapping.
1: Me and you wrapping
0: up the show. Will go on though if Nate does his job.
1: We, if yeah, yeah. I do my if job. If Nate does
0: his job, so we will be here. Via the audio, but we, we won't be here in person is what Josh is
1: trying to say. Right, Josh. Gone yeah, it. We, we won't be but I won't be here to see Nate freeze his toes yeah, off. Yeah, we'll be but... back
0: for that. We ain't missing that. We we'll 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 do whatever we gotta do for that. So thank you for that. Please consider sharing the show with all your friends, emailing it out to everyone you know. Just hold them five-star reviews until January 1st reviews. and then just pound them into submission. Immediately. Be- because we are going for the Mountain Rushmore status in 2020. That's our 2020 goal. Sergio Chapa actually mentioned the other day that he thinks he should be the fourth head on the shirt. And I thought, you know what? That's not a bad suggestion there. And then he goes, well, you know, but David Blackman's been coming on for a while, too. And I thought, well, can we do a half Sergio, half Blackman face? Or we could take Nate out. So we got me, you, Sergio, and David that actually makes me, and like have like a little being Nate at the bottom of the mountain, kind of stand there. Yeah. That'd in be the more water. appropriate in the, in the water, water. Yeah. a little, a little waterfront property in front of the Mount Rushmore. We're getting somewhere with this. So anyways, please share. Thank you guys. We'll have a Merry Christmas. We will be here, but it will just be, um, end of the year review, 2020 predictions. We have a lot of fun stuff. Hopefully some Exxon mobile stuff for you guys. Hope you enjoyed. And we will talk to you next year.